I'm Chris Lefebvre, and you're listening to The Vonnegutcast, a co-production by the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library on WQRT 99.1 FM, Indianapolis. In 1922, Kurt Vonnegut was welcomed to Earth. Over his 84 years, he became a beloved writer, known for his unflinching look at the world and an outspoken voice for free speech and common decency. Known for his unique sardonic style, Vonnegut published 14 novels, three collections of short stories, five plays, and five works of nonfiction. In 2022, the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library are celebrating Vonnegut's 100th birthday. Join us as we explore the ways Vonnegut's legacy has shaped the lives of others and continues to make souls grow. From the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, this is the Vonnegutcast. 2022 is the year of Vonnegut at 100, a century of stories. The Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library has a full year of programs and events celebrating the life, work, and legacy of Kurt Vonnegut. Registration for our 11th annual Teaching Vonnegut Workshop Series this July is now open. Led by experts in their fields and Vonnegut scholars, workshops aim to enhance both public and educator knowledge on a variety of topics related to the works, interests, and philosophy of Kurt Vonnegut. Register today at kvml.org. Band Books Week 2022 will be unlike any other. This week is dedicated to programming, raising awareness about the censorship and banning of art and books. We will also welcome KVML artists and residents who will be living in the museum to participate in an anti-censorship experiment. An ensemble of singers, songwriters, and musicians will write, rehearse, and perform an album of songs inspired by Vonnegut, and you will have the chance to pitch in. Stay tuned to kvml.org and our socials at Vonnegut Library for upcoming announcements about Band Books Week, Vonnegut Fest, and the rest of our 2022 events and programs. Hello and welcome to the Vonicast. I'm your host, Chris Lefave. Today, we're excited to have Beatriz Vasquez with us. Beatriz is an artist in the tradition of papel picado, a Mexican folk art. With the manipulation of paper material, she transforms layers of intricate cut paper into murals, creates wearable sculptures, and exhibits large-scale installations. Her work focuses on her Mexican-American ancestry, cultural memory, border culture, and current social issues on immigration, human rights, and climate change advocacy. She is an Indianapolis native, and her work is currently featured at the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library. Uh, it'll be up there till mid-August. I definitely recommend that you all stop by. Um, so I remember back in the spring when we were discussing hosting your exhibit, you mentioned that you're a Kurt Vonnegut fan and that your children read Kurt Vonnegut as well. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, well, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me here. I am having a wonderful time um, fe being featured at the Kurt Vonnegut Library and Museum. And yes, uh, literally my children grew up uh, reading uh, Kurt Vonnegut's books, you know, uh, the books that are basically um, 
assigned to read, to be read in school, you know, I mean, but I mean, yes, they, they, uh, I, I really truly believe that they've learned so much from, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, they are, they, they uh, just love their, you know, his writing style, and I have to admit, you know, I mean, I've just been getting closer and closer and just reading more and more books, you know, uh, some of the books that I had never read before, um, you know, the ones that my children had actually, like, showed me, and it's, Absolutely, I'm so I'm so happy that I that I've uh, finally rediscovered you know Kurt Vonnegut again. I love it. Right on. Are there specific books that stick out to you in your mind? Yes, actually, there's one right now that I uh, I'm I've kind of been reading. It's called um, uh, what is it called? Sym Sympathy for the Reader. Something oh, like pi that. Oh, Pity yes, the Reader. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Pity the Reader. Pity, yeah, for pity our, the Reader. For our listeners, Pity the Reader is a, is a collection of Vonnegut's advice on writing that was put together by a student, Suzanne yes. McConnell. Yes. Uh, Vonnegut had a lot to say about the creation of creative writing, and yes. he was uh, quite an advice giver. So, I'm, yeah, I'm curious to your mm -hmm, thoughts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pity the Reader uh, has been uh, just li literally like one of my companions in the studio. You know, I'm, I'm working, I'm listening to this, uh, to... Um, to them read it, you know, f on, on uh, how do you call it, Audible. And I'm just so fascinated by how nonchalant uh, Kurt Vonnegut was in the way when he was, you know, one of his um, uh, students asked him for for his advice and for his critique. And, uh, and once he gave the critique, he was like, you know, but you know, my critique doesn't have any, I mean, you go out there and you do whatever feels good about your creative writing. I'm going to give you my critique, but it's really ultimately up to you to make up your your own damn mind, right? <laughs> Literally. Yeah. And I, I was just loving, um, you know, just listening to that um, particular way of style, you know, the way he creates and the creative writing process. And I mean, I've written all my life, you know, but um, just very privately, you know, and it's one of those things that I, I don't know, it's, it, it's kind of like uh, almost encourages me to continue writing, you know, even for myself. And I, I, that's, that's what I feel about that, that particular book and that particular experience listening to it. I, I was speaking with my wife last night about that, the, um, you know, Vonnegut, especially Vonnegut's creative process, which he called bashing. Uh, there were bashers and swoopers. A basher sweats over every sentence until it's perfect. A swooper writes an entire manuscript and then goes back through. And I've noticed with the exploration of writing, like I'm an artist, I'm a musician, but when I'm painting, I'm not concerned with the final product. I'm just improvising. And when I play in bands, I like to lean towards improvisation as well. Writing is one of those situations where total improv wouldn't necessarily work so well. Like if you just put random words in random order that, I mean, I'm sure somewhere out there there's an audience for that, but it's it sounds pretty tidy exactly. in my mind. Uh, so Vonnegut taking it to the absolute nth degree and distilling sentences down to where they're perfect, which is very similar to mm -hmm. your process. I mean, it's, it, mm -hmm. it's very, um, very detail-oriented, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, would you... Um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. Okay, well, first and foremost, thank you so much for uh, speaking a little bit about, uh, you know, the creative uh, writing and, and his style of Kurt Vonnegut's style because it is very much like what you're saying. You know, the improvisation factor is uh, is something that he, he promoted, you know, explore that, you know, and write how you feel and basically just, you know, just, just write it, do it, right? Um, and that's one of the things that, you know, I can totally connect with, with my artwork. I mean, my artwork is literally, I mean, 
all improvised. You know, I, I get an image in my mind's eye, you know, like, for example, um, you know, I start thinking about cultural memory, how I grew up on, on the border. I was born in, born and brought up in Brownsville, Texas. And um, when I turned 20, I moved here to Indianapolis. And the reason why I moved here to Indianapolis is because I had uh, was kind of looking, running kind of away from like, um, you know, the generational trauma that I had kind of like grew up with, you know, just being uh, growing up on the border, um, you know, the economics of, you know, struggles that my parents faced, um, just the fact that I felt like I was running away from something that I wanted, I wanted more for myself, right? I kind of wanted to uh, go back and, and just um, heal, I think. I mean, back then I did not have the, the, uh, the knowledge in, in, the, in the words for how I, how, you know, the reason why I came here, but it was because of that. You know, now that I actually think about it, I'm like, wow, you know, um, it was because of, of generational trauma. I was trying to fight against that. So I came, I moved here, but my grandfather and my grandmother had lived here in Indianapolis, gosh, since the 1940s, you know, something like that. And, um, and they came here to do, um, you know, to pick fruit, right, to, they were migrant workers. And so was my father at a very young age. He was a, a migrant worker. But my father, um, he uh, said that, you know, when he grew up a little bit, uh, you know, older, where he could just like say, basically say, I don't like this. I'm never going to do this again. He uh, he's like, you know what, mom and dad, I'm, I'm out of here. I don't like living here in Indianapolis. You know, he did face a lot of like racism and a lot. I mean, back then it was just extremely, you know, in those, um, uh, you know, it was just so different. Right. I mean, and and in uh, the Latino community wasn't some, you know, a, a huge community here in Indiana. Right. Or Indianapolis. So my dad went back to um, uh, Mexico in Brownsville, Texas, and he met my mother there, and they got married, and, you know, we were all born here in, in Brownsville, Texas, <laughs> yeah. literally. I'm always like, okay, we were just literally, you can cross the, the you know, the, the river, and then you're, you're just there, right? You're in Mexico. But, um, but yeah, that's my, that's, uh, that's some of my, uh, my past, uh-huh. Gotcha. And it's, um, so, it, so you came to be in Indianapolis, how? Uh, well, so I came here and kind of basically wanting to go to like school, you know, I mean, I wanted to, I knew I loved art and, um, and you know, I, I was inspired to, I've always been inspired to become an artist. I've always said, I want to be an artist. I'm going to be an artist. And it, it seemed like a dream, like somebody, my family could not even capture that that whole concept of, of being an artist, right? I just knew I wanted to create. So I came here and I immediately enrolled at IUPUI, right? Gotcha. So I went to IUPUI and then uh, I went into uh, Heron School of Art and Design. And I mean, I spent so many years going in b back and forth, but finally finished in 2006. And then I, um, you know, I've, but, but I've been like creative. <laughs> Again, you know, most of us artists, we are, creative since we we're like literally born right so. yeah and you get a little tense when you're not creating too i've, <laughs> yeah. I've noticed that uh, we were potty training a child over the weekend and i was like i'm gonna get away and just make some terrible drawings for a little while just to get some of the stress and tension out of my mind yes exactly 
Uh, we just did an episode with Robert Montgomery and Kevin Finch. Robert Montgomery is the son of Wes Montgomery, legendary Indianapolis guitar player. Mm -hmm. uh, they both described how folks in Indiana tend to overlook the artistic power in Indianapolis. Uh, firstly, do you agree? Second, what drives you to stay in Indianapolis? Yes, uh, wonderful question, actually. Um, I do agree somewhat with, with them because... For, I mean, I've been creating with the same concept and with the same inspiration um, of Papel Picado inspired. I always say that I'm a contemporary Papel Picado inspired artist yeah. because of the fact that I want to, I'm, I'm constantly incorporating my personal knowledge, my personal experiences, and of, of being this brown Mexican woman, right, that came from somewhere else to live here, right? And the reason why I say that I do agree with with uh, Wes and uh, his son is because, again, I've been creating the same, with the same concept, with the same quality for over 17 years now. And it felt to me like either Indianapolis was not ready for me or I was just not being included in, in those spaces that are giving opportunities to artists, you know, with funding or with exposure <laughs> or with, you know, other, um, other benefits, you know, that are going to help that artist go to the next level, right? So for a long time, I felt that way. And, um, and so, but, but I was still doing a lot of work, you know, uh, with with as many communities here as I, I possibly could, especially with the Latino community. But I also, one of the things that I, I felt like I absolutely had to do was travel to get, you know, my work, um, you know, uh, influenced from other places and also have those spaces influenced by my work. And so one of the reasons why I do feel very much... Um, like it's also changing though, you know, now because people are, are understanding that, that um, the inclusion of the arts is vital to Indianapolis and to every city, really. Um, I feel like organizations and uh, museums that once excluded me are opening their doors to me and saying, here we were, we, we thank you for your art. We want to feature you. You know, I, I feel kind of like an apology almost, you know. But, uh, but I do feel that Indiana is starting to become definitely more open, more inclusive, and, uh, you know, and, and uplifting the arts as they should be. Yeah. As they should be because the arts are part and ingrained in every single community here in Indianapolis, in this diverse and interesting city. Well, and we just lived through a pandemic, too, and it was very interesting how we were all reaching for the arts anywhere mm -hmm. we could go, like anything to see something interesting, anything to have an experience that wasn't being trapped in your home, uh, anything that could get you out. And I, and I think we're going to see a slight upside to that is that people are going to hopefully remember that and hopefully think, oh, my God, like almost emotionally and psychologically, we are so dependent on books, paintings, yes. music, films, theater. Like we, we mm -hmm. are very dependent on these things. Yes. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And uh, again, you know, I'm so glad that you mentioned the pandemic because the pandemic has 
literally uh, changed my whole reasoning for creating art, you know, and again, you know, going back to the, to my work and, and uh, the, you know, the vision that I, that I wanted to bring into the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library is, you know, the immigrant experience. Yeah. Um, we have this, uh, so we have your exhibit up right now, and when we were discussing this, we talked about having you create a portrait of Kurt Vonnegut. Now, again, your, your, um, your work is so intricate. It involves cutting things very carefully because, you know, it, it, it's just very, you can talk about it more intelligently than I can. But I'm really curious, like, can you walk me through your process mm -hmm. step by step and, like, give me an idea of how long it takes sometimes? Like, you, you had mentioned that in your head, sometimes the image is there. Right. But I imagine the journey from head to actual finished product is a bit of a, is a, bit of a walk. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, and I meant to do that earlier, I completely. Um, yes, the process of my work is like, for example, right now, you know, I have this image of Kurt Vonnegut. I know exactly how, he, how it's going to look. I know the size. I know the layers of paper that I'm going to be um, cutting. And also, I know the colors that I'm going to be using. So first and foremost, I have this vision in my mind's eye. And then I can start talking about it. And this is the what it, I am going to offer, you know, my um, uh, the people that are, you know, that are asking for my commissioned, if it's a commission piece, right? So finally, I uh, actually, first and foremost, I start spreading the paper. And I usually um, create on acid-free uh, background uh, photography paper. And these come in all colors. It comes in amazing beautiful um you can almost order you know which color you want but i really really love it for its black pitch black color and so most of the work i uh, I, I lay out the um the actual um black paper you know to the size that i am going to have it for example this one is going to be five feet by five feet right and i i prepare it and then i I normally will record myself when I do the very first cut. So before I do the very first cut, I, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm constantly hitting this thing. Um, I, um, with a very light pencil, I draw a very, very quick and, and very loose image of what I have in my mind. Just the... I mean, when you look at the work, at the actual paper, you'll see just a lot of lines, you know, just just a, a, like an outline of something very vague, right? And then I will get my X-Acto knife and I will start cutting. I, it, that, the lines will kind of guide me to and give me the opportunity to improvise my next step. Now, the connecting part of all that because I usually cut one layer of paper and sometimes that's, that's the entire and the only piece. That's called the skeleton. And it's only the black piece of paper, the raw cut, right? And then, so some, and then uh, other times I will fill it with colors. So I will have one layer and then another layer and then another layer and each time I will fill it with different colors. Not the whole thing, only on some of the pieces that I want to emphasize with a different color. So for example, this part, particularly when I start cutting the piece, the paper just starts, um, it's, it's like I cut the negative and I leave the positive, right? So I'm, when I teach, I'm, I'm always speaking about make sure that you see the negative and you cross out 
uh, now cross out the negative because that's the one that you're going to cut and you are going to leave the positives. So the, and you know, for the, for the students that I'm teaching, I always allow them to put little X's on the piece, on the area that they're going to cut. Right. And also I always talk about connectivity because the whole piece must connect to sustain itself, you know, and I always compare that all of my work is compared to a metaphor. Like, for example, the cutting of the negative and the positive, I always cut the negative out of my life, right? And also the um, the metaphor of leaving, filling it with color. So the negative, once I decide on the color, on which pieces I want to color or which ne negative space I'm going to fill with color, because I don't fill it all with color. I feel only what I, you know, the pieces or the negative spaces that I would like to color or emphasize. So anyway, that's the process is, it's very intricate. Um, I, I really love it. Uh, I think that that's really literally one of the reasons why I create because the creative process is, is part of the healing process for me. And, um, I think that that's all I can say about it. I mean, until you actually look at the uh, at the recording itself, it's it's almost magical to see it come alive. Yeah, yeah, I definitely get that vibe. Um, so you teach? I am a teaching artist. Yes. What's uh, where, where do you teach and who do you teach and? Okay, so oh my goodness, I've been a teaching artist uh, for so long um, since I started becoming an artist or even prior of like quitting my job and actually, you know, uh, becoming a full-time, uh, full-time artist. I've been teaching all my life, but I do teach right now with Arts for Learning and um, Arts for Learning and the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. I am their visiting artist, basically a teaching artist, um, a resident for 2022 uh, through 2023. So that's what I'm doing right now. I'm teaching with uh, Arts for Learning and um, with which usually send me to so many different schools, uh, different places around Indiana because it's Indiana. Um, it's an organization that is a, a national organization, Arts for Learning. And then, of course, the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you. Um, so not only do you create these, uh, incredible and large paperworks, but you've delved into the realm of fashion by creating wearable works. What drew you to experiment with the idea of clothing? Wow. Um, again, you know, as a child, uh, growing up on the, on the border of Texas and Mexico, you almost have to be, uh, you almost have to learn how to improvise when you're a child because, when you're a poor child, you, in, in if you're creative enough, you literally start like creating with everything around you, right? So since I was a, a very young child, I would create like wearable art with whatever I could find around the house, right? But it did not become like a real clear profession until um, my very first show was in at in raw. R-A-W, Raw Artist here in Indianapolis, back in 2000, 2000 I, I have to say 2010 maybe? Yeah. In 2010, um, they, uh, they were lacking some fashion designers, and um, uh, what somebody asked me, they were like, Beatriz, can you, can you make wearable art? And I was like, of 
course I can. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, of course I can create wearable art with paper. And it became a challenge. And then I was like, oh, no, I can do this. This is going to be so much fun. So I fell in love with the whole process of manipulating paper. And when I say manipulating paper, I mean, I tear it. A long time ago, I was so afraid to touch the paper. I thought I was going to, like, ruin it. But now I get a hold of beautiful paper and I tear it, I, 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 I spray it, I, I mangle it, I, 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 whatever I have to do to manipulate that paper to do what I wanted to do. Because the human body, we are all so diverse. And I mean, I want it to be snug. I want it to fit nice. I want, I want my, um, the people who wear these wearables to feel like, you know what, this is a piece of artwork, you know, that I'm wearing proudly, right? So that's actually why I'm uh, doing this artist residency at the um, Children's Museum of Indianapolis. I'm their wearable artist creative um, resident. Very cool. Um, So that's, uh, you got art, you got our exhibit, Um, you're working with Art for Now, sorry, Art for Now. Is that Arts for Learning. Arts for Learning. Yep, sorry about that. Art Art for Now is the company that the New Orleans Jazz Festival uses. I don't know why that popped into my head. Uh, the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. Uh, what other kind of programs do you have going on right now? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so I was going to say, you, you're a busy artist from what <laughs> I understand. <laughs> yes, and, uh, well, right now I'm actually trying to finish uh, a piece, a tri-picked, a 14-foot tri-picked, uh, 14 foot by five feet, uh, tri-picked for uh, Ambassador Maria Brewer from Lesotho, Africa. And uh, through that residency, I will be doing a uh, artist exchange with going to Lesotho and teaching my art there for a couple of weeks. Uh, so I'm super excited about that, <laughs> and that's upcoming. I'm still I'm still putting the final touches on the tripic. It was a, a, a huge endeavor, but it's it's coming out really gorgeous. And then another thing that I'm also doing is I am um, oh waiting to hear from some really really prestigious um, uh, grants that I have applied for the that I was invited to uh, to apply for, and I'm just kind of sitting and waiting on on that to hear about that i'm really excited but i'm not gonna mention anything more about it uh but other than that i you know i'm of course i'm i'm still featuring at the um at the indiana state museum uh with with collecting indiana the um uh the exhibition so when you're this engaged with your art you must be very on the go and busy um, one thing Kurt Vonnegut said many years ago in an interview was that, um, you know, his, his writing process involved getting up early, which is special in the arts community. I, I played in a band once. We got together at three in the afternoon and then concluded it was too early in the morning. Um, so I thought that was really interesting that Vonnegut was a morning person. I wouldn't have guessed that. Uh, but he worked about three hours early in the morning, and then he would work for about an hour before dinner time. And he made the remark in the interview, he said, human beings are only productive about four hours a day. And I grew up with workhorses, you know, workaholics almost on both Mm -hmm. sides of the family. Like my father's been gone 12 years, and I can feel him punching me in the face right now at the very thought of people only being productive four hours a day. He would would lose his mind if he heard that. Oh, my goodness. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> Likewise, my 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 ancestors too would just die. They'd be what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My my mother too. I, I think there would be like madness. I was like, what do you mean you're only productive four hours a day? How much time are you spending napping? Um, you know, so I'm curious about that. Like, is are are you are you able to give yourself rest with all of this? You know, I um, being a an independent artist for close to ten years now, I've learned to discipline myself, and uh, especially with the the number of projects that come my way every year, I leave my calendar open only half a year um, because most of my the first part of my, of the year is already full you know in 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 full swing so i know myself enough to know how long you know a project is gonna take me right sometimes um you know amazing things come my way while i have all these other projects going and intact but i do have to admit that you know because i do have to literally like survive from these um you know being an artist uh, i do take all these other commissions that are on um you know that offer uh funding right so for me my time is extremely important uh you know because of course again i am a full-time artist i'm an independent artist um i am a brown woman you know and and all of that plays an important part on on the survival of my work. So yes, I mean I'm very disciplined. Uh, most times I will, will be very produ very productive uh, early in the morning, and then I will take a little break. But then I will hit it hard again another three or four hours. You know, I mean I'm especially when I have like deadlines to meet. I I know exactly, you know, um, how much time to give myself, and not just that, but also uh, it's a it's a way of also present presenting yourself as an artist, right? Presenting your professionalism. Um, you know, when, when you respect yourself, you know, as an artist, others, you know, respect you as an artist as well, because this is like your living. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I totally feel that, um, you know, the Vonnegut Library was kind of a labor of love when we started at the beginning with nothing, and, and, and the hours you take on during that time frame are, are pretty impressive to mm -hmm. look back on. Uh, John Green, the legendary Indianapolis author mm -hmm. that we got, he has this wonderful quote where he says, reading makes time for a world where you can, or reading makes time where you can be still and quiet in a world that doesn't provide that. And I thought that was really beautiful. I've, I've mm -hmm. noticed that when I'm trying to like recoup some serotonin into my body, <laughs> reading is something I really reach for. Uh, but I also noticed that, uh, you know, with anxiety, I've been looking at the visual arts too. Sometimes I'll like, if you have like a book of sketches by somebody or, or a coffee table of painting books, um, you know, you'll just, um, I, this is, you know, I, I get nervous when I'm having my blood pressure taken. And one thing I do is I look at paintings, listen to music, read books, like anything to take my mind off what's uh what's going on absolutely absolutely uh what other artists do you look for inspiration in wow um i look into so many different artists oh my goodness i mean one of my, one of my favorite artists is frida kahlo um she made a huge impact on on my uh on my creative performance you know on my creative um image right on on uh on 
on the way I embraced my culture, you know, and, and the pride that comes with embracing that culture, you know, your roots and, and, and just expressing yourself with absolutely no care in the world what anybody thinks about you, right? So I am like such a proud Mexicana, right? A Mexican woman or a Chicana that, you know, she really helped me you know, by with her work and her readings. I mean, I've been reading so many books about her as well. And one of the one of the one of the things that she always said is like, you know, even the worst parts of me are part of me. And I love me, you know, and that is one of the things that I just kind of like lean on, you know, even the worst, the worst parts of me that I hate that I want to that I'm ashamed of. I mean, they're, they're already a part of me. So and I do love me, right? I mean, I don't depend on anybody to love me, which is like something that is, it's really hardcore, right? When you start to think about those things, because we all kind of depend on love, right? But you got to love yourself first, right? So that you can be able to love others, right? So for me, Frida Kahlo has, you know, made, made that impact on me, right? And on, on self-love, on self-acceptance. I really love her for that. Another artist that I've come to really love is, um, is, is, uh, oh my goodness. Um, I started, I started reading one of her, her great novels and it was, um, well, she's a writer. She's, she's obviously a writer and an artist, right? But Isabel Wilkinson, Wilkinson, I started reading her books lately and just I mean I, I've always seen like writers and we're all creatives right we're all creatives in in many different mediums just because we're we're visual or writers or we're all the same right that that uh, creativity comes from deep deep inside that something that we must be able to share with others and her her work is almost like a, a like it opens so many doors to social justice Right. So my work is you can see the social justice aspects behind all of my work that I do. And I, tr I just very recently I've learned to accept to create just for fun. And wearable art has kind of taught me that to create for fun, because for so many years I've been creating for social justice. Right. And and how can I bring, um, you know, um, I don't know maybe some kind of like, like, like uh, pride to my parents or into my great grandparents and to my ancestors. Maybe they wanted to be artists or whatever they wanted to do, but they couldn't do it. And now that I'm able to be this artist, I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna do it as much as I can. And as amazing as I can, because I'm, it's not just about me, it's about my ancestors. It's about you know, uh, my children. It's about the, my students, right? Who do I teach? I teach everybody. I teach students from very, very young ages in the preschool. I've been teaching and, and collaborating with uh, preschoolers. I've been teaching uh, students from all ages in uh, uh, first grade, kindergarten, all the way to 
to um, high school and then college students in Berkeley. And now I'm really looking forward into trying to do something new with elders, with the elder community, um, bringing art to the elder community is who are, again, some of the most vulnerable and excluded communities in the arts. And I think I answered all the questions. <laughs> well, and, and, and I think with the, uh, with, the, with the elderly, too, you have so many stories there. I mean, you have to, you have to, oh. you have to figure out a way to yes. consume, especially in our world of social media. I'm just really curious how we're ever going to consume the amount of biography that we need to consume. Exactly. And, uh, and with the elders comes so much history Yeah. that, you know, they have retained so much history that we have forgotten. And it's, I, I believe that as artists, it's our responsibility to create responsibly, to create with, um, with meaning and with purpose for a better world to, com you know, to change a life. And I mean, I don't know. I always see my own life as like, I always say art saved my life, right? So, yeah. uh, and for me to be able to, to say that to other students and say, you know, I don't know where you're coming from, but this was my, my past. And I also went through this, you know, I, we all carry generational trauma one way or another. And art is a wonderful way of healing. Yeah. I like that you said art saved your life. That's, uh, we run into that so frequently in the museum and then Vonnegut himself uh, you know, in the 1990s, he was working on his last novel, Timequake, and he was having a big struggle. I, I think he withdrew the book one time and, uh, and and gave the book a second, like a whole second half. Mm -hmm. It was a real struggle for him, and it was not a terribly fun experience. And during that time frame, he met the screen printer, Joe Petro, based out of Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, and they put together this collaboration where he was painting things on acetate, and then Joe Petro was screen printing them, and then Kurt would sign them. Mm -hmm. It's this phenomenal addition. They created so much stuff in a you know relatively short period of time. I mean, Vonnegut passed away in 2007, so 14 years. Um, what I really loved about A Man Without a Country was toward, you know, some people say that there's some dour sentiments in that book, but there's also some really beautiful stuff, like no matter how bad things get, the music will always be wonderful. Uh, music is proof of the existence of God. And at the end of it, he credits Joe Petro with having saved his life. Mm -hmm through the visual arts. Um, you know, personally, I, I, I play music because music is everything to me, but when it comes to writing and painting, I am mm -hmm. trying a little bit, I guess, to like leave a part of my story from my mm -hmm. son, who's four, they're gonna mm -hmm. turn four in November. You know, you, you want so badly to have left something behind. And I'll, I'll never know whether that's morbid or whether that's just maybe you were a history nerd. I mean, I certainly did poorly in math and science and I did well in English and history. Um, but it, it, you know, we're all story. I, I like what you said about we are all storytellers. Everybody has a story. Um, everybody has. Everybody's had an interesting life, whether they acknowledge it or not. And I, and, and I think that's uh, that's an important thing to focus on. Uh, right now, we're celebrating uh, Vonnegut's centennial this year. A lot of our events and programs deal with the passage of time. It's also a theme very present in Kurt's own work. What do you think or hope art looks like a hundred years in the future? It's hard to imagine that, eh? It really is, honestly. Um, um, I thrive. I mean, first and foremost, I work with I work with paper, yeah. you know, uh, paper and glue, 
And one of the reasons, and this is one of the reasons why I'm always um, explaining the reasons why I work with Paper and Glue, is because it's so accessible to all communities in, around the world. No, no matter where you come from, uh, no matter how uh, marginalized your community is, there's always paper and glue, right? So for me, you know, I, as an artist, I feel like it's my responsibility to create as many, in many ways, and in many ways, uh, and different techniques of paper cutting, paper manipulation, just working with paper, with so many different diverse um, methods so that I can inspire, you know, uh, others to create with that even if it's just a basis you know of 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 another you know medium that's going to be their their medium of choice right as they grow up etc but I believe that you know one of the things that y another reason why I work with with paper is because I know I'm not going to be alive a hundred years from now I know you know uh I know that you know that I'm going to die someday right but my legacy of creating and giving back to the community, giving back to my students. You know, just that little seed of knowledge of how to create with things that are around your home, right? I mean, when we start to improvise, you know, with the things that we already have at home, I hope that there's, you know, a community of artists in the future, you know, or in a hundred years that continue to create with the leftovers, right? With with all of the the things that that have have already damaged so much of this earth, right? So I am an advocate for for environment environmental sustainability, right? I am an an an, an activist for you know uh, environmental health. Right. And I mean, because the vulnerable communities, you know, completely depend on 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 us to bring awareness and to bring uh, creating with more sustainable materials, first and foremost. You know, I don't believe that a piece of artwork has to stay forever and ever. Of course, unless it's going to be like, you know, I mean, the music, obviously, you know, and I love that we can always go back to the history books and look at all these amazing, amazing pieces that have been kept. These are only things, you know, all the books and all the art that we know of, the, of a hundred and centuries, are the ones that were safe. We don't know of the millions and billions that have been lost in what they did those to those civilizations, right? So, I mean, for me, it's, it's about working with, with each other as a community and bringing awareness to a better, a better sustainable world. So yeah, I mean, I hope that, you know, in the future, the arts and the artists continue or become more focused in the sustainability of life. Man, you, uh, the passion you have for this uh, subject matter is filling this room. And I feel it so deeply because I'm a museum curator myself. And every person who gets into museums has this deep desire to preserve literally everything like we're basically hoarders who were given a job and it's um it's it's really something you know we had a uh, eight years ago we had an artist named tim Yude come through and he uh he does an art uh, art projects where he types entire novels on two taped together pieces of paper and the positive is beat the heck and the negative is is an abstract that it looks pretty cool uh, at the end of the week, we lit Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 on fire mm -hmm. as a, you know, protest against censorship. Mm -hmm. 
And I thought it was so funny. I was like, you know, I really am going to do this. I'm going to take this burned, burned to a crisp piece of paper, and I'm going to preserve it. And so, you know, I, I thought, okay, there's no way in hell I'm ever <laughs> going to use this for anything. But we have the Grand Falloon exhibit down in Bloomington, and I thought, you know what? I've got to represent the year 2014 somehow. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, I'm going to bring this completely charred piece of paper down to go. Bloomington and just say, hey, this is why this is here. Yes. Um, I really I really enjoy those little things that we can do. Um, yeah, your, your remark about what has been lost is uh, – is is definitely felt. I, I get that when I'm listening to music. Like, you, you ever hear a song that you really, really love and you haven't listened to it in 30 years and there's this weird emotional feeling mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, God, what was I doing for the last 30 years? Mm-hmm. I let the song down. It, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. And that That's... isn't even a lost piece of music. That's just one you forgot about temporarily. Exactly. So, like, loss, loss in the arts and humanities is uh, is very intense and a, and a tough subject matter mm-hmm. uh, all the way around. Mm-hmm. Um, so right here we've got the speed round, uh, which is how we tend to uh, slowly wrap things up. So this will consist of rapid-fire questions. Say the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just want to say nine times out of ten times the answer to that is no. So I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, we did speak a lot about Indianapolis, so I'm going to keep this local. Uh, what's your favorite music venue here in Indianapolis? Hi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, what is your favorite restaurant? Uh, La Parada. Awesome. Yeah, I am a big fan as well. Uh, when I was a kid, Pluto was a planet. Then it wasn't for a while, and now it is again, I think. Uh, anyway, Kurt Vonnegut made up a gang in Breakfast of Champions called the Pluto Gang. If you were going to fire a planet, which planet would you fire? Uh, Uranus. <laughs> I can tell you have children. <laughs> that's, that's where... That's exactly... I, I don't know. I, I don't think I could bring myself to fire. Maybe I'd fire. Uh, maybe I'd fire Venus. I don't oh. hear a lot about Venus. Um, but then again, I don't know much about space. So maybe maybe getting rid of <laughs> maybe getting rid of Venus would cause some major societal problems. Whereas maybe Uranus is far enough away that it wouldn't affect anybody. Uh, what societal organization would you name after the planet you fired? <laughs> okay. So you gotta, oh my goodness. The Uranus golf club or something. <laughs> Get your head out of your. <laughs> okay, but what out of your anus, your anus. <laughs> the societal organization. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> societal organization. Oh boy. Uh, some of Kurt's work explores time travel. If you had a time machine, would you travel to the future or to the past? To the future, for sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That is very open-minded of you. Yeah. <laughs> to the future. See what the disaster we've done. <laughs> No, that's no laughing matter, darn it. No, no, but that it would be hard to, if you could only choose one, it would be really hard. I would probably go back to like the 60s or the jazz age or something like that. But uh, yeah, yeah, I would be, I would be curious about the future. I'd, w- I'd want to see what, I want to make sure my kids are doing okay yeah. and having a good time and seeing the right amount of concerts. Yeah, and that definitely. Kurt was appreciated the world over for the advice he gave in not only his writing, but in his classes, speeches, and letters. You also teach Papel Picado across Indiana. So what's your advice for the young artists out there? Don't let anybody, anybody tell you that you cannot do whatever you want to do in this world. If you want to be an artist, you can be an artist. That's all I know. Yeah, amen to that. Uh, thank you, and until next time, Beatrice, thank you so much for your time and joining us here today on the Vonicast. Thank you for wearing a Pink Floyd shirt. You absolutely made my day. 
Uh, to learn more about Beatriz Vasquez and her art, please visit BeatrizVasquezArt.com. Gotcha. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. Until next time, Vonnegutian, stay tuned to KVML.org and our socials for more exciting episodes coming soon. Saludos. listening to the Vonicast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Beatrice Vasquez. To see and hear more from her, head to BeatriceVasquezArt.com. Stay tuned to KVML.org and our socials at Vonnegut Library for information on all our events and programs, including new episodes of the Vonicast coming soon. The Vonicast is a co-production by the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library and WQRT Indianapolis. Special thanks to our guest, Beatrice Vasquez. The Vonicast is produced by Fiona Duffy and Drew DeSimone. Audio mix and editing by Nick Corey. Cover art by Arusiak Pivatsian. Vonicast episodes and all other KVML programming can be found on kvml.org and our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Vonnegut Library. Here in the sound.